Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. During the month of February, also known as Heart Month, Heart to Heart with Anna will be broadcasting a show every single day. On Tuesdays, we'll have a brand new show featuring our theme for Season 7, Congenital Heart Defects Around the Globe. The other days will be encore presentations with a brand new introduction. If you'd like to know what shows will be featured, you can check out our website at www.hearttoheartwithanna.com. Congenital heart defects are the number one birth defect. But one of the common statistics that is propagated on social media is that congenital heart defects happen to one in a hundred babies. And that's not really true. Actually, that number is only representative of some congenital heart defects. And it doesn't include the most common congenital heart defect known as bicuspid aortic valve. This is frustrating to me because I want people to know that they are not alone. And by cherry picking what heart defects are counted to make that one in a hundred, instead of including all heart defects, we don't make it look as prevalent as it actually is. There are probably three in a hundred instead of one in a hundred people who are born with all of the different types of congenital heart defects. There are over 40 different types of congenital heart defects that people can be born with. And so you are not alone. Today's Encore presentation is the very first episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, and it features some wonderful guests. Please sit back and enjoy this Encore presentation of Episode 1 from the very first season of Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the debut episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy. Imagine that you are pregnant, and during a routine visit, your doctor suddenly announces that you're going to need to see a specialist because there appears to be something wrong with your unborn baby's heart. Before you know it, you're having a level 2 ultrasound, meeting an ultrasound technician who specializes in ultrasounds of unborn babies' hearts, a pediatric cardiologist, and possibly other specialists you may never have known existed. Or imagine giving birth to your baby, only to be told that you can't hold him or her because they need to run a few tests on them, only to be told that your baby may need life-saving open-heart surgery even before leaving the hospital. Or imagine all your life your chest sports a scar while none of your friends have a similar scar. You know you've had heart surgery, but it's not something you remember, but you know you're different. Or imagine you're finally going to have your first grandchild, and you are so excited, only you receive a phone call from your child telling you that something is terribly wrong. These scenarios are all too frequent in the congenital heart defect community, and they lead to feelings of isolation and fear. That is why our topic, You Are Not Alone, is so important. To discuss this topic today, we have guests Nancy and Jesse McCain, Callie Rickard, and Carl Walford. Nancy and Jesse McCain are the grandparents of Samantha McCain. She was born on March 1, 1997. They found out when she was two days old that she was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. She had her first open heart surgery when she was four days old. 
the second when she was nine months old, and her third surgery when she was five years old. All of this was a very emotional time for them. As grandparents, they had to stand back and let her parents, Steve and Pam McCain, make all the decisions about her care. Quilting was a way for them to cope. When they were asked to help with the congenital heart defect awareness quilts, they accepted and helped make the first quilt and have gone on to make 75 more. Samantha is now a junior in high school, and she is on the swim and golf teams. We'll be meeting Callie Rickard, the mother of a son with a congenital heart defect, and Carl Walford, one of Denton Cooley's oldest adult survivors with total anomalous pulmonary venous return later on in the show. Let's start by talking to the grandparents. Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about Samantha and how having Samantha, who needed surgery so early in life, made you feel? It was like being hit by lightning. And then after that, for the next five years, it was like being on a roller coaster. We had no idea that children, babies had heart problems. That was like my husband says for dirty old men who had heart attacks. <laughs> <sighs> So what helped you and your family realize that you were not alone? A co-worker of my son had a daughter that had the same HLHS, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and they sent a picture home, and it showed her in school, and it gave me hope. I'm sure that did. How old was the child? She was in kindergarten at the time. Oh. She's now in college. Wow. So, can you tell us how you became involved with the Congenital Heart Defect Health Awareness Project? It sounds like you were in from the very beginning. Yes, we were. Gabriel Schofield sent an email to my son and talking about a heart quilt, and he said, yes, he would like a block for his daughter, Samantha. And, um, by the way, my mom's a quilter. Maybe she could help you. And so I got in contact with Gabriel, and we made a bunch of heart blocks and sent them to her, and we're still doing that. Well, since my son also has a block in one of the quilts, can you tell our listeners how special these are? Well, they give people hope to know that they are not alone, that other people have been involved, and to those that have passed on, it, it brings their name back up and so they can see whenever it's read, they can remember their child, that it was here, and that others are involved and have the same problem. Absolutely. I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit how special these quilts are. I remember that you asked me what kinds of things Alex was interested in, and so I sent you material that was Harry Potter material. and right. And you put together a special quilt block just for Alex. Can you tell our listeners what you do with each of those quilt blocks? Because I know each one has the child's name. And what other information is on the block? They have the child's name and their diagnosis and their birth date. And if it's from a foreign country, then they have the foreign that country is also on the block. And if they passed away, then that date is there too. But there's so many of them that are living with these heart problems now. So each one is special for each child. We try to make them pertinent to the child that we're making the block for. And they send in on the request, but if they don't, then I usually email the person and try to find out what to add to the block. So in this way, you're in contact with a lot of other people in the congenital heart defect community. That's correct. And it's really kind of strange to email Israel or France <laughs> or something. Because it's international. Absolutely. How many countries have been displayed on the quilts? I believe it's 23 at this time. That's just wonderful. Well, let's talk to Jesse for a moment. Jesse, can you tell us how you became involved with the Quilt Awareness Project? Well, it was self-defense. <laughs> Nancy was involved in making blocks and quilts, and then she also makes six baby quilts each month for two different charities. Now, it's either learn to sew or learn to cook, so I picked sewing. <laughs> well, what I loved about you was that you came in later. Tell us a little bit about what you did for a living before you started making the quilt blocks. Okay, I was uh, 
Started out as a machinist apprentice and worked for Caterpillar Tractor for almost 36 years in quality control and inspection department. And so, you know, making the quilts and blocks and stuff, they, they've got to be perfect to, to be in a quilt. And uh, the fun part making a block is finding the fabric that matches their request. That's like, you know, when you said... Uh, Harry Potter. Well, we didn't have Harry Potter fabric out here in California at the time, and we got it, you know, a couple of three months after you sent it out. But yeah, I know that it made Alex feel really special when he saw it. Well, we got to go pick out the fabric and then send it to you. And so when he saw the block for the first time, he was just thrilled. Yeah, could we we send a picture of the block? To, uh, all the families, and after it's in a quilt, then we'll send a picture of the, the quilt out to the families also. So they get to see a lot of different types of, of blocks, names, diagnosis, and so they know they're not alone anymore. Absolutely. Now, I was lucky enough to meet you and Nancy in Houston at the International Quilt Festival. Do you all do that very often? No, we did it. Three years in a row, uh, they invited us there, gave us a, a big double booth to uh, display the quilts, uh, and they, they even brought a sewing machine in for us so we could teach kids how to make heart blocks. So it was a, a fantastic experience of getting a congenital heart defect awareness out. It absolutely was. And you know what made Alex feel special, Jesse? that you sat down right beside him and you taught him how to make a block that was included in one of the next quilts. Yeah. It was fun. You know, and the kids, you know, they're, they're super. Uh, I had all kinds of kids coming in, and and uh, some of them knew a little bit about sewing. A lot of them didn't, but they, they all learned a little bit about heart defects. They certainly did. You and Nancy are such an amazing couple and such terrific grandparents. I want to thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. And now we need to go to a commercial break. But when we get back, you'll get to hear the mother of a son who has endured multiple open-heart surgeries and who has had to hear the words from a doctor no mother should have to hear. Find out what the doctor said to Callie Rickard when we get back. Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, A handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with grandparents, a mother, and an adult survivor of a congenital heart defect. And our topic is, you are not alone. Now let's talk to the mother of a child with a severe congenital heart defect and how she dealt with the feelings of isolation, which commonly occur after the diagnosis of the heart defect. Callie Rickard is a wife and a stay-at-home mom to Diana, Alex, and DJ. After a normal pregnancy, she welcomed DJ into the world on June 23, 2003. 
DJ was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome at two days old, and then later, Schoen's complex with severe pulmonary hypertension. D-Day has since had seven open-heart surgeries, five before his first birthday, one at age two and his last one at age seven. He's had four aortic and mitral valves replaced. He received the smallest mechanical mitral valve ever placed in a baby. In 2010, a heart and double lung transplant was recommended, but DJ was considered too high risk. After his last open-heart surgery, he suffered a massive brain hemorrhage requiring two brain surgeries. He recovered and looks like any other normal, healthy boy. Recently, Callie's family moved from Washington to Texas, pursuing better health care, new job opportunities, and a little adventure. So tell us, Kelly, how did you find out your son DJ had a congenital heart defect? Well, DJ was born on a Monday in June 2003. I was in labor for about 42 hours. And when he was born, he seemed healthy. He was a big guy at 8 pounds, 7 ounces. He was absolutely beautiful. I never wanted to put him down, so I was just, I held him all day and I held him all night. The next day, nurses started coming in every couple hours to listen to his heart, and I kept asking them why, but they would not tell me anything other than things didn't sound quite right and not to be alarmed. Later, in the middle of the night, they came back and told us they were going to be transporting him to Portland, Oregon, which was just right across the river from us because they couldn't get an IV started, and they felt like he would be better served in the intensive care unit over there. They didn't have an intensive care unit at my hospital. I remember being really scared seeing him getting all ready for his first ambulance ride. On June 25th, 2003, I got a phone call in my hospital room, and my husband answered the phone. And he was pacing, and he looked so serious. When he hung up that phone, he called the nurse who had been talking to me about lactation out into the hallway. And um, I just remember a real big swirl of urgency and I was immediately discharged and all our things were just gathered up and thrown in the back of the car and and I kept asking what's wrong and my husband said we'll just talk about it in the car just get everything hurry up we got to go and um, on our way to the into Portland to the other hospital um, he told me that it was the other hospital that had called that they had found something wrong with our baby's heart I cried the whole way there. I didn't know what that meant. I don't remember getting to the hospital or even walking in, but I do remember sitting down in this giant conference room with about a dozen different people in there waiting to speak to us. I I was just crying. I couldn't see anybody. I just heard the voice of that doctor telling me that our son was born with a major heart defect and without surgery he would not survive long that he was in heart failure and he had been placed on life support. And he was just drawing this picture trying to explain that he was born with hyperplastic left heart syndrome. The left side of his heart was just too small that we needed to make a decision real quickly for surgery. And they gave us about a 20% chance that he might survive that first surgery. What were your other options, Callie? We weren't given any other options. Um, they were going to. He was born on a Monday. The following Monday, they were going to do the Norwood, um, and he was going downhill so fast that on Friday, after he was born, um, they decided to do a balloon valvuloplasty. Balloon open his aortic valve to help him make it to the following Monday, and something crazy happened when they ballooned open that valve his left ventricle filled up a little bit bigger and his heart function improved and they canceled his Norwood and when he was two weeks old on July 5th my wedding my very first wedding anniversary he was discharged from the hospital and came home wow that must have been amazing to be told that he had to have this surgery 
and then all of a sudden they do, I imagine they did the balloon valvuloplasty in the cath lab instead of open heart. Is that true? That's correct, yes. And so he was able to be discharged much sooner than if he would have had open heart surgery. I believe so, yeah. He had long hospital stays after all his open heart surgeries, so two weeks to come home on my wedding anniversary is the best wedding anniversary present ever. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, they told you a lot of information in the hospital, and you had just given birth, so this must have seemed really overwhelming. What kind of re- Yeah, what kind of resources did they offer you? Well, they had given us a bunch of handouts that were just printouts. They gave me two books, actually. They gave me um, the It's My Heart book that's put out by the Children's Heart Foundation. And we also received the book Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, which I just learned recently that you wrote that book, Anna, and that's amazing. But my biggest resources had to be those ICU nurses. Mm -hmm. I asked them every question I could think of. I asked them about how and why they did things, what medications were, what they were called, what they did, what words meant that I didn't understand. I wanted them to show me what they were doing with DJ. I wanted to be just like those nurses in intensive care because I wanted to be able to take DJ home and not worry that I couldn't care for him myself because I did not want nurses at my house. So I tried to learn everything I could from them. And they were all so wonderful. They never treated me like I was bothering them. They all really enjoyed teaching me and involving me in everything that they did because we spent most of DJ's first year in the hospital. So those nurses weren't just my resources. They became our family. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it takes a very special person to be an ICU nurse or an NICU nurse or a PICU nurse or PICU or NICU, as we say in the in the heart world. Uh, those those are very special people, and I'm really glad to hear that they actually did do some training for you to make you feel competent to take care of DJ. But how in the world is it that they sent him home after two weeks, but then you said that you spent the better part of a year in the hospital? What happened next? He only got he did come home at 2 weeks old but it was very short at, at he was home for about 3 weeks and he wouldn't wake up for me mm-hmm. and I was trying to feed him a bottle he just would not wake up so we took him into ER they called code they had to put him immediately on life support he was in congestive heart failure oh my goodness and so he was admitted back into ICU at that time, and um, they were considering doing a heart transplant at Loma Linda in California, and instead decided to replace his aortic valve. They were thinking maybe we could get by with the valve because waiting for a heart would take so long, they Mm -hmm. didn't think he could make that wait, so we chose to do a valve surgery. But because that space was so crammed in there, they damaged his mitral valve trying to get an aortic valve to fit in there. And so about a month later, they had to replace his mitral valve. They could not find a homograft or a flesh type of valve. So Dr. Starr, the inventor of the mechanical heart valve, special ordered a mechanical heart valve mitral valve from St. Jude's Hospital and they specially crafted one for DJ and he had the smallest mechanical mitral valve ever placed in a baby at that time. That's just amazing. (laughs) That's just amazing. You must have felt so blessed that you were working with a doctor who created this valve for your baby. It It was a giant blessing that we got that valve and at the same time, another heartbreak because placing that mechanical valve made his aortic valve fail. And four days later, he needed another aortic valve replacement. Wow. Now, was, was this the days before the Ross procedure was invented? 
or did they consider moving his pulmonary valve over to where his aortic valve was? They did consider that. I think the the Ross procedure was around back then. I'm not sure exactly why they decided to go this route, mm-hmm. but that's what they offered us and said would be the best way to do it. In hindsight, I did have a surgeon ask me maybe we should have gone the route, Ross um, route, but for whatever reason, they, they didn't do it that way. Before the break, I told our listeners that you heard the worst thing that a doctor could tell you. And I'm referring to DJ needing that double lung trans, the double lung and heart transplant. Can you tell us about how you felt at that time? It was devastating, actually. We were um, told about transplant for about a few years, and I had turned it down. And when he was seven, he was readmitted into ICU for congestive heart failure, um, endocarditis, and pneumonia. And um, they told me at that time, if, if we went heart only, because he's got severe pulmonary hypertension, a new heart would not survive under those conditions his lungs were in. So our only option was heart and double lung transplant. And we tried to have him evaluated by a hospital in California, a hospital at Seattle Children's Hospital, and in St. Louis. And they all turned us down because they felt that DJ was too high risk, he wouldn't survive the wait, he probably wouldn't survive the surgery, his rejection rate was extremely high. And the doctor looked me straight in the face and said, I'm sorry, there's nothing else we can do. All kids like this die. And they offered me to take him home on hospice care. That was our only option left, was just take him home on hospice. I refused. I said, if he's coming home, I'm taking care of him. And so we went home. We were home for about two weeks, and they called me and said they re-reviewed his case. They would like to offer us one more open-heart surgery to replace his aortic valve again, which at the time had calcified and narrowed quite a bit. He had gotten over the endocarditis. He was over the pneumonia, so he was okay for surgery at that point. And in October 2010, um, he had an aortic valve replacement, his seventh open heart surgery. Well, Callie, let's let's end this on a happy note. Tell us how DJ is doing now. DJ is doing remarkably well right now. Um, he runs and plays and gets along like any normal 10-year-old boy. He can ride a bike. Um, We recently had him evaluated at a new hospital here in Texas with a new cardiologist team, and they were really, um, gave us a lot of hope, actually, for the first time in a really long time. We haven't been given much hope. But they did an echocardiogram at their hospital in Houston and they were showing that his heart is doing really well, that it's functioning really well, that there's no signs of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, no signs of Schoen's syndrome. And they've kind of cautiously re-diagnosed him with critical aortic stenosis, meaning just his valve is small. Um, Our main plan at the moment is Sometime in November of 2013, he will have a a cardiac catheterization done, and he's going to see a pediatric pulmonologist, which he's never seen before. So we can kind of get reevaluated on his pulmonary hypertension. I was told the tree, the blood vessel structure in his lungs, was missing the the small branches, so it looked like a tree in wintertime. They're thinking that it must be better than what it was three years ago because he looks so good. He has no outward symptoms like most kids would with problems with breathing and exercise tolerance. Well, that's really good news, and I think that your story is going to provide hope to a lot of people in our community. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Callie. 
It's time for another commercial break. When we get back, you'll meet one of the oldest survivors of a rare heart defect known as total anomalous venous return, a condition where the main pulmonary arteries that lead to the heart are not in the right place. Find out what this man endured way back in the 1950s when pediatric cardiology was in its infancy when we get back. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at heart to heart with Anna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with grandparents, a mother, and an adult survivor of a congenital heart defect, and our topic is You Are Not Alone. I want to go ahead and tell you a little bit about Carl Walford. He was born in 1957, the fourth of five children. At four months old, he was only the second baby to survive a surgical procedure by Dutton Cooley to correct the congenital heart defect called Total Anomalous Pulmonary Venous Return, or TAPVR. After being near death prior to surgery, the total correction has led to a very active life full of sports, some which still continue today, a long-time career as a financial advisor, three children of his own, none of which have any heart defects whatsoever, and a passion for encouraging and helping others affected by congenital heart defects. From that day in the recovery room at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston until a pacemaker was installed 18 months ago, he had nothing whatsoever that slowed him down or limited his very active lifestyle in any way. For 54 years, he needed nothing. Needless to say, Dr. Denton Cooley did good work. So, Carl, what was it like growing up with a rare heart defect in the late 1950s? Well, Anna, for uh, several years, I went back to Texas Children's from the beginning for checkups every few months at first, and we would eventually space them out with Dr. Cooley. And uh, being that this surgical repair, this surgery, was really done in the pioneering days of heart surgery, I saw uh, Dr. Cooley quite a bit at first. Um, we became quite familiar, and when you look at the advances that we've made at the current state of medical technology, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine how they did what they did back then with what they had to work with. I've seen pictures of the contraptions and the, some of the equipment they worked with, and it's amazing to me how they did this. But uh, uh, at first, yeah, I went through plenty of checkups uh, for what the time was, really a rare heart defect, but as time went on, those uh, visits became further and further apart. And I guess I was 12 or 13 when they stopped totally. I can't remember them after that. Really? Uh, you didn't have to go every single year after that? No, no. They, they oh. uh, Not only did I not go every year after that, um, I think I can remember one time when I was maybe 19 years old, I went back for a little blip or something, but... Uh, other than that, nothing came from any of those checkups. So no limitations, no medicines, uh, no further surgeries, nothing happened. So uh, uh, the knowledge of growing up with this 
heart repentance, uh, the repaired heart defect was, of course, it was always with me. I knew I'd had it, but mm-hmm. that was about as far as it went. Uh, I had the whole uh, scar thing as a kid, and growing up in Texas down here, we went shirtless quite a bit as kids, and I was pretty conscious of it, I guess. Um, not many kids had undergone and survived major heart surgeries back then, so having a scar was a pretty unique, sometimes a pretty cool thing. Uh, we, didn't, <laughs> we didn't grow up around bears or tigers or wild <laughs> animals, so I, I couldn't use that story on why the scar was there. So, I, yeah, I was pretty shy about it at times. Uh, but on the other hand, I knew a lot of people who I grew up with, and uh, they never even knew I had a heart defect. Because they and, had never seen you shirtless, so they didn't know about yeah, it? Yeah, they mm-hmm. didn't know, and... Uh, if if they did see or if they, they did find out, uh, if I had uh, the occasion to let them know, they were sometimes pretty confused because I was so active and into sports. Uh, That's I'll right. Be, I remember you told me you played tennis and golf. Can you tell yeah. us about the different sports that you did play? Well, yeah, I was pretty much uh, anything with a ball. Uh, <laughs> my parents were at first pretty apprehensive, I think, about how far – uh, they were comfortable in letting me push myself, and and I'm sure they watched me pretty closely as I watched my kids growing up. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the fact that I gravitated to sports as much as I did very early in life too helped them, I guess, lengthen the rope a little bit mm-hmm. and give them uh, some level of comfort that grew over time. And I guess by the time I was nine, I was playing baseball. Uh, back in those days, we didn't start when we were three, right. <laughs> like we do now. <laughs> So the first chance I had, I was probably nine, uh, played baseball, uh, began playing golf with Dad very early also. I think I was playing tennis about ten or so. And uh, uh, so, and then my lifelong passion, of course, with pool had already begun by that time. Wow. So did you feel alone? Not really. I, I was, you know, this, this began before I even knew. And so... Uh, uh, I don't remember feeling alone. Uh, I was so young. By the time I was growing up, I guess I felt kind of accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I understand how kids might feel that way. Uh, my answer is to to those kids and those young adults is to get to know people who have walked in your shoes. Um, that's the the very best way to to go about it. So I didn't feel alone. I felt kind of unique, uh, mm-hmm. and mostly in a pretty good, unique kind of way. Mm-hmm. And that continues today, but just as an adult, you know, we all grow up, and that feeling takes on a whole different meaning as an adult. And uh, I understand very clearly that life is not to be taken for granted. We are one of the things I've learned through this heart, <clears throat> these last few years of this heart uh, issue, is we are very, very delicate, and life is delicate. And that's how I look mm-hmm. at it. And that's how I live it. So how old were you when you started seeking out other adults who had the same heart defect you did? Well, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, Three, four years ago, around 2010, is when I really started to dig into it. Um, The fortunate thing in my case was that the heart defect and the surgery, it just wasn't an issue, like uh, like Mm -hmm. I said earlier, for decades, really. And... uh, I didn't pay much of attention. Uh, I was, I'm not a big, big guy. I didn't have any heart, uh, health issues. I didn't have any heart issues. Uh, have always been, uh, I was probably 130 in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty small. Uh, my NFL career ended abruptly. I knew <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I'm probably 160 now. I'm just under six feet tall, but, uh, I've just become a lot more in touch with the issue as I've gotten into my 50s here, and that's brought with it this passion I've developed for encouraging and helping people affected by heart defects, and whether it's the person themselves or the, the parents of of babies or young adults or young kids that uh, that have got uh, heart defects, I've, I realized I'm kind of in a unique position here. That's kind of what turned all this on, is that I am the age that I am, and there's not a lot of those of my kind, at least of my kind of defect before me, so I'm in a unique position, and I want to use that position to help others uh, wherever I can. Well, I think that's just wonderful. And for those who don't know, Carla and I are on the Texas Children's Heart Foundation board together, and that's how I came to know Carl. So was there a certain event that precipitated you starting to look for people, Carl? <laughs> there was. <laughs> Mainly it was age. Uh, it was age and uh 
way back when the surgery happened, me being only the second survivor, my parents got to know the parents of the first child who mm -hmm. survived this pretty well. Uh, a little boy named Michael from Louisiana. And in the midst of turning 50 several years ago, and my family, my brothers, my mom, banging on me about getting this checked and getting that checked, and mm -hmm. all those really cool things we get to do when we turn 50, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, including, in my case, my heart. So I got mm -hmm. to wondering in that process how my buddy Mike was doing. I had no idea, but I knew we had a tremendous amount in common health-wise, mm -hmm. and I wanted to know. I wanted to know how he's doing. I, <laughs> I had no idea. And uh, through an amazing amount of divine intervention, I call it, in a number of different ways, I found Mike. He's got a very common name, and uh, <laughs> but the the stars lined up right, and I found him. And needless to say, we stay in, in pretty close contact now, and we share our heart experiences and our stories with each other, and uh, uh, we keep each other on the same page. And um, I also had the thrill really recently of. Uh, of meeting somebody else, another person just a few years younger than me, uh, and a member of, as I call it, the senior class of PPR <laughs> survivors. <laughs> uh, I don't know a lot of us up at this age, but uh, I was able to meet Julie, and we sat and talked for two hours and uh, talked about life and health and family and all the, the things that we might see in the future for both of us and uh she was pretty interested in seeing what i had gone through and some of the things i have she hasn't yet mm. and hopefully won't but but we don't know um those kinds of meetings are what makes me want to reach out to so many more people Absolutely. and share experiences and the information that we can both help uh that will help us both and and that's that's i can't i can't stress that enough i don't want to contact as many people as i can yeah so i'm curious um did she have the same surgeon as you? She did. Really? She did. We in the, yeah. We actually just, in fact, today, kind of kind of exchanged um, procedures as far as what Dr. Cooley did to fix her versus what Dr. Cooley did to fix me. And uh, she said, "There's no, and it's in typed." form it's it's on all typewriters back way back then before <laughs> computers mm -hmm. so uh we we looked at both of those and compared them and and there's a lot of similarities wow so you said that she hasn't experienced some of the things that you have for the listeners who might have a child with tapvr or an adult who has tapvr can you give us some examples of some conditions that they might want to watch out for yeah some of the things that that i went you know, like I said, I went through from zero to, to uh, gosh, 54, I guess, with nothing, zero. And uh, finally, I had some, I had some heart, what I call flutters, mm -hmm. uh, little bibs that you wouldn't even know. But uh, and it didn't, it wasn't anything that slowed me down at all. I just knew that it was there. And as they got more often, more frequent, um, I thought, well, this is not going away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it began to become accompanied by a little bitty, little busy thing, which I could be talking to you eye to eye, face to face, and you wouldn't even know I did it, and I had it. Mm -hmm. So it's very small, but even those start to, to speed up a little bit. So we went through, um, I did get get associated with a cardiologist then, finally, after, what, 54 years. Wow. And uh, we we did a couple of procedures to take care of some atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. So that's, I don't know that everybody's going to face that. I, I don't know, but um, I did. Mike did. Uh, Julie's seven years younger than us. I didn't have any signs of anything at 49 or 50 or 51. Mm -hmm. uh, who's to say uh, how soon these things come around and whether they do or not? But that's that's the things that affected me and Mike were on. You know, we're talking about the same thing on the phone, and mm -hmm. yeah, he said, yeah, I had that, yeah, I had this, and it's it's there's a lot of similarities. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and for giving us hope for parents and for adults who have children with TAPVR. They themselves have TAPVR. You are definitely an inspiration. It's nice to know about Mike and Julie, too, that there are adults out there who are living and living fairly healthy lives until they get into their 50s. And what I want people to know, too, is that you did have some procedures after you started having the atrial fibrillation, and now you're still doing well. Isn't that so? 
Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's what kind of what I call a mechanical fix. Uh, we had a, a couple of what's called cardioversions, mm-hmm. where they shock the heart back into rhythm uh, after after. A, a really, really, really racy heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, I don't know, it's, I don't know what, it's, what the medical term is, but I call it a mechanical fix. Because once it's done, it's done. And you don't feel, you don't, you don't feel bad. You don't, you're not sick. You're not, you don't have fever. You don't have any aches and pains and all that stuff. None of that. It's done. And, and so, yeah, I feel fine. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm sure I'll see you at some event in the future. Thank you so much for I'm coming sure. on the show, Carl. And, Now it's time for our last commercial break. Please tune in for our next segment where you'll hear our miracle moment when we get back. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Today we spoke with grandparents of a granddaughter with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, Nancy and Jess McCain, Callie Rickard, the mother of a son with a severe congenital heart defect, and Clara Wolford, an adult survivor of a congenital heart defect known as total anomalous venous return. And today's topic is You Are Not Alone. I want to thank all of my guests, Nancy and Jess McCain, Callie Rickard, and Carl Walford today for coming on our debut show and for talking about ways to overcome the feelings of isolation and loneliness that often accompanies the diagnosis of a congenital heart defect. The most important lesson to be learned from today's show is that we are not alone. There is an entire community for the congenital heart defect people, and we are over a million people strong And what's wonderful is we all open our arms to one another. So now for our final part of our show called our Miracle Moment. And today's Miracle Moment is from the introduction to the heart of a mother. In the interest of time, I will just share some of Judy Norwood's words with you. But if you'd like to read her entire introduction, you can do so on our website, www.hearttoheartwithanna.com. Or you can order the book, The Heart of a Mother, from our website or Amazon.com. Judy Norwood was born with a serious congenital heart defect known as Tetralogy of Fallot, which is also known as Blue Baby Syndrome. She writes, I know the questions that are in the hearts and minds of parents, young women, and yes, young men, when a congenital heart defect is present in their lives. Parents ask themselves so many questions. How long will our baby live? What kind of quality of life will the baby have? Will she be able to have children? Will he be able to father a child? Should we trust our child's life to the hands of a surgeon? What will happen to him or her if something happens to us? Mom will worry that she did something to cause a heart defect or that it could have been avoided had she done things differently. Dads will worry that somehow they are responsible for their children's heart defects as well. There is guilt, frustration, and yes, there is anger. In the 1940s, most children born with Tetralogy of Fallot died before or during their teens. It was also believed that children born with Tetralogy of Fallot were unable to learn. 
The school nurse told my mother that she might be able to teach me to cook and sew, but thankfully, my mother was not satisfied with that. She taught me how to read and write. After my first surgery in 1949, a Potts shunt, I was able to go to public school for the first time, and because of my mother's diligence, I was able to enter fifth grade with the other children my age. I graduated from high school in 1957. When I had my first surgery, a great and wonderful change came into my life. I bounded around in a way that I was never able to do before. I learned to swim, ride horseback, ski, and skate. I was just like any other normal teenager. But one of the first questions that I asked my doctor when I came to be old enough to be thinking about it was, "Will I be able to have a baby?" On January second, nineteen fifty-nine, I gave birth to a baby girl, Peggy. I had a very difficult time because the hours of labor and the delivery took their toll on me. But when I saw my beautiful baby girl for the first time, I was so happy. The pain of childbearing was forgotten. But how was her heart? I asked the doctor. Her heart was fine. She was perfectly healthy. All five pounds, twelve ounces of her. Now, thirty-nine years later, my daughter's family has grown. Now I have three granddaughters, two grandsons, and one great-granddaughter. I am so proud of each one of them. All I can think is, look at what I would have missed if Mom and Dad had not trusted me to the hands of a surgeon. I have seen cardiology grow to the high-tech, computerized, sophisticated profession we know today. Whereas in the 1940s, there was little hope for people like me. Today, there is much hope for a person born with a congenital heart defect to live a full and purposeful life. That concludes today's debut episode of Heart to Heart with Anna on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in next week when our topic will be post-traumatic stress syndrome, anxiety, and survivor's guilt in the congenital heart defect community. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. Music.